Okay, good morning everybody. If uh, you're still getting yourself some coffee, make it snappy, take a seat. There we go. Good morning everyone. Hope you're all well. Um, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Jeremy. I have one beautiful wife. Her name's Becky and she's sitting up front over here. And um, I've been told to tell you that we've been married for 18 years not by Becky, um, and those have been a glorious 18 years. We really did enjoy the sermon last week. It was very helpful. Thank you, Stu. Um, so, yeah, married to Becky, and I've been told as well to be very, very certain to tell you that we've got three children, okay? We've got three children. Um, a couple of years ago, I came up and I stood up and I said, we've got two children, and little Isaac was thinking, well, who am I then? Um, but the truth is we have three, but I want to say this, we have two children that have been very gracious to us um, in that they have followed us as we have followed Christ um, and have been kind to us as we've moved them from South Africa to Cornwall in 2008 and then again up them and moved them to Birmingham in 2010. They've been very kind to us in that and I think um, yeah, they've, for all of that they've given up a lot. They've given up friends, they've given up um, schools, they've given up Things like going to the beach in the morning before going to school. Um, they, they've, they've given up a lot and they've grown in that. We've also got our youngest, as I've said, Isaac. Isaac was born in Birmingham. And uh, if you haven't met Isaac yet, I'm sure he will introduce himself to you at some point. He is the master of one-sided conversations. He'll keep you listening to him for at least 15 minutes. You won't be able to get in a word. And uh, he, he just loves having a good talk. But... Because of Isaac, we're now officially a multicultural family. We're, we're four part South African and one part Brummie. So yeah, he's, he's helped us to integrate and, and we want to thank him for, for that. One thing that you need to know about us is we love Christ. I think that is probably to be expected, but just to say that we really, really love him. A few years after I was saved, as an example, I said to God that I would do whatever he asked of me. I wanted to make myself available to him. I was, I was doubtful about my abilities, but I was willing to trust him with what he, he had for me. So I, I laid that all down and I said, God, whatever you have for me, I'll do it. Whatever you, you've got for me, I'll do it. And um, Becky didn't know this yet. In fact, Becky didn't know me yet. And um, a couple of Months after we, we started getting to know each other, I decided I was going to lay this all out on the table. So I said to her, listen, Becky, you need to understand something. You need to know that if you're going to marry me, we'll be traveling. I, I feel that God's called me to Europe, and you need to know that I'll do whatever he asks. And are you willing? Are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to lay down your dreams? Are you willing to lay down your family in this way? Because that's what's going to be required if, if we get married. She was 17 at the time. <laughs> and uh, she had some amazing dreams. And she had a really tired family. And uh, as you might expect, she was more than a little bit um, blown away by what I just proposed. She looked at me and she said, you want to get married? Um, this isn't going to be a courtship 
session. We've had that already, and we're going to have another look at, at that particular topic um, in, a, in a week's time. But um, just to let you know, I don't think I would take our journey and lay that out as a framework, which I would suggest for all young Christian couples. I think uh, we did some pretty crazy stuff. And um, the truth is we were young, we were in love, and yeah, a lot of the things we did, our friends thought were just downright foolish. Um, but the truth is, God has been very, very faithful to us. He's carried us through every storm, every challenge, and the truth is, every sunny day that could have lulled us into a stupor. Every day on the beach where we were lying there and thinking, this is the life, why would we need to go anywhere else? He stopped us from staying in that place. And I'm thankful to him for that. He's, he's kept us free from debt so that we can be free to serve him. He's given us a great love for the unity of, of his church. And, and that love for that unity has protected our hearts and our, our minds from the offense that can often come from people inside his body. We need to know that that's a truth. If you haven't come across it before, if you haven't been offended by someone in the body of Christ, believe me, it's coming. It's going to happen. Last time I checked, we're not a bunch of perfect people. We're usually a bunch of uh, less than perfect people. But, but the offense is going to come, and God protected us from that offense. And he very often stilled our tongues from speaking out against um, others in his family. He's stopped us from settling in our hearts. He's, he's given us a, a constant sense of there is, there is something more um, that he has. And because he's done that, he's driven a stake through our inherent laziness. Yes, it's true. I'm lazy. It's one of the, one of the things teachers said the most about me on my report cards every single year. Jeremy could do so much better if he just put himself to his work. If he focused ever so slightly, I'm sure we'd see better grades from Jeremy. These are the kinds of things I remember. I'm lazy, but God is bigger than my laziness, and he's driven a stake through that laziness, and he has made us people that want to see his kingdom come and see his name glorified. He's been a good, good father to us, and we want to reflect that goodness. We came to Birmingham, in 2010 to plant a small congregation in Sutton Coalfield. Um, it had a very original name. It was called Sutton Christian Fellowship. Um, it pretty much told us exactly where we were in, in the geography of the UK. Of course, at that time, I wasn't very familiar with the geography of the UK, and I didn't realize that there were many Suttons in the UK, but it was good enough for us. Sutton Christian Fellowship. The vision for Sutton Christian Fellowship was to become a Christ-centered community of believers that raised Jesus up and made his name great. It was to embrace Sutton Coalfield and to love it with everything that we had. And our little congregation grew into a slightly bigger congregation, and two years in, we felt that God was talking to us about changing the way we're doing things, not laying our vision down, but reorientating, adjusting our approach to what God had called us to do. And after a lot of prayer and a, a lot of discussion, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but it was, it, was, um, it was a fun time, wasn't it, for those of you that were there? A, a lot of discussion. We came to the conclusion that God was saying we need to merge with Real Life Church. And um, the sense was that together we could achieve far more than if we continued separately. Our visions were similar. Our ministry ethos was very similar. What we wanted to achieve in Sutton Coldfield was similar. When we planted was pretty much a similar time. And um, 
And we believed that the merge would be a proclamation of the unity of God's kingdom. And here we are, two years later, not as two churches meeting together, but as one church with one vision, with one purpose and one king. And I give God all the praise for that. I've got to be honest with you. I've, I give God everything for that because I've seen churches merge before and I've seen them fail very, very often. It takes a lot to join two groups of people and um, it takes a heck of a lot to join two groups of people that are different in culture and approach. I see it even in marriages. I see so many times people come to marriage and the word tells us that marriage is two Two, two become one, flesh. But I see marriages so often that are, are one flesh and one flesh trying to cohabit a space that's made for one person rather than merging and becoming one. It's more a case of, um, of tolerating each other than true unity. And it causes so much difficulty in marriages. And, I, you know, we value marriages and we'll, we'll talk about that more in the future. But if it's so hard for two people, how much harder is it for two groups of people? So what we see is that it takes a miracle to unify people and it takes God to unify His people. We wouldn't stand in unity if it wasn't for Christ. That's the truth. We can do everything we can to try and make uh, the transition smooth, but if it's not for Christ being our focal point, we would never stand in unity. And today we are a testimony of a miracle-working God who has unified us. And I just want that to sink in for a little bit, okay, because what's happened over the last two years in real-life church is a miracle. Yep? Good. Okay. Now then, let's look at the text for today. What I see in this text is, as Stuart said, ancient wisdom that's been laid out for us. He's called it truisms, and I think that's true. It's, uh, sometimes they can sound pithy, like little statements that you kind of stick on your, your uh, fridge, and you look at them when you need to be reminded of, of something nice or good, but sometimes they can lose their meaning because of their pithiness, because of their um, smallness. Um, and in some ways, it can seem prescriptive, as Stuart said, it can seem legalistic, um, like a list of things that you should do or, or should not do, and if you manage to get it all right, then you're guaranteed a good life in the here and now. Um, but the truth is, if I look at the Gospels, and I look at the epistles of the New Testament, and I look at, at, at Proverbs through those, I know that that's not the truth. What we actually have here is, is Solomon being a sage, a, a prophet, and while he's writing down words of advice to his son, what's coming through in the Word of God is a description of what God's people look like when they're saved by Christ. And so when we see these words, and we're going to go through three very practical um, pieces of advice, what I want you to see is, yes, the practical advice, but then the image of Christ that comes through that, and the image of what His people look like when they live for Him because of those, those points. So we see that. And, and um, as I look back at our journey, the one I've just shared with you a few points from, I can see quite clearly examples of how God has allowed us to obey these three principles. Not because we knew Proverbs off pat. I think we, we knew very little of Proverbs, probably just a little bit more than we know numbers. Um, but, but because we loved Him. 
Because we continue to love Him, He's allowed us to obey them, and our hearts were inclined to Him, and we wanted to please Him. James 2 verse 18 says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And I like James. I think he can be um, more than a little sarcastic at times. And I think this statement is, is one of those. is quite clearly telling us you can't sh- show me your faith without your works. You just can't do it. It's impossible. It's intangible. I'll show you my faith by what I do. But what James is, is not saying is that you have to work at your own righteousness in order to earn your salvation. Let's just not go down there and let's not put James against grace, okay? James is not against grace. James is saying something very different. James is saying that if you truly have been saved, your heart will be so fundamentally altered that it will result in good work. Good work will be evidence of what God has done in your heart. It will show your affection for your master. The things you do will show your affection for your master. And when we look at Proverbs, we need to see it in that light, not as a, a presentation, not as a prescription, but as a, as a mirror, something that will help us to see what our hearts are really like. We need to see, use it as a barometer to help us to measure our spiritual pressure. How are we doing? So let's get to the text then. Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an, un- like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. <coughs> Excuse me. So as we, as we read this text, 
What we need to be doing is we need to be praying. We need to be asking God to show us, because we love Him, how we can change. How might we live? How can we be better prepared to do His will? And what He does is He answers that prayer by showing us three things that we can do to be better members of His church. In verse 1 through 5, he speaks to us about our stewardship. He speaks to us about how we handle money. And I think a a good word to, to cover not just money but all financial things is responsibility. He talks about our responsibility. In verses 6 through 11, he he speaks to us about how we discipline ourselves. And in verses 12 through 19, he speaks to us about unity, about how we build community. And um, you might think, well, when I'm reading that, I'm hearing about a whole bunch of rubbish people. I'm not hearing any good stuff. And that's the truth. These three sections are written in a progression. And and Solomon uses negative examples to teach us positive lessons. So as we see this um, passage going in a downward spiral, down, 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 the lessons we learn should be going in an upward spiral, going from something that's important to more important to most important. Okay, so that's the way we need to look at it. It's also important to to notice that um, we go from a bad example addressed to his son um, to the worst example addressed to a sluggard and then on to the worst example addressed to a disruptive person. Actually, it's also addressed to a worthless person. So, son, sluggard, worthless person. In fact, the third example Solomon feels so strongly about that he actually repeats himself. He, he says it in two sections. Um, he hates the idea of community breakers, people that would break up the unity of the brethren. But we'll get back to that in a, in a moment. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, my dad always used to say to me, and, and maybe some of you will have heard the same thing, Jeremy, never a borrower or a lender be. And I was young at the time, and I'd, I'd ask him what he, he meant by that, and he, he had no end of examples of situations where he had lent someone a power tool, um, still got your power tool, or a, a book, or a tennis racket, um, and that was the last he'd ever seen of it. And um, it never came back. And he would rem- he'd, he'd say to me how much strain that would put on relationships. And uh, he, he would also remind me that if people forget to give your stuff back, you're probably going to forget to give other people their stuff back as well. He knew this was part of human nature. It wasn't that, that these people were doing it out of spite. It's just, you know, sometimes you, you borrow something and, and you forget to give it back. Sometimes you borrow something and you, you break it and you feel terrible about it, but you can't give it back. And sometimes you borrow something, maybe it's sugar, and um, you're in a really hard place, and you can't get more sugar to give it back. It's, it's very rarely out of spite, but it very often happens. So, and, and his problem was, was not so much the, the not getting it back. It was the strain, as I said, that it put on, on human relationships. So if we forget to return something, then we're none the wiser. We think everything's great, but the person we've borrowed from is just quietly seething and... Um, developing more and more of an offense as time goes on until they they genuinely hate you and they can't remember why. Um, It would be so much better if they just said, listen, can I please have my tennis racket back? It was signed by Bjorn Borg, you know. Um, 
If we break something, we feel terrible, they feel terrible, and we have to do some work at some cost to replace what we've broken, and it causes strain in the relationship. If we consume something and we, we find ourselves unable to repay the lender, at best we can expect them to write it off. That would be nice, it would be kind of them. Um, at worst, they will expect us to repay them, regardless of how long it takes, and that's what people with credit card lending facilities do to so many people, don't they? That's okay, we'll extend the credit, we'll extend the terms, you can pay for the rest of your life, but you're going to pay it back. And as I say, it's, it's, um, my dad was not a miser, he's in fact a, a very generous man, but uh, what got his goat was, was uh, the breaking of relationships by borrowing and lending. He would far rather give something as a gift and never expect it back than to lend it. And um, this principle was tested when, when, I got, when I finished college and I decided that I would um, like to start working as a freelance designer rather than go and work for an agency. And I uh, did my research and I knew I would need some equipment, I'd need some stationery and I'd need some uh, capital to get going. I tried to arrange finance for the equipment, the bank would have none of it, they wanted some security, they wanted some assets or somebody else with assets to sign as a co-debtor on the loan. And uh, who had some assets? Dad. So if I went to Dad, and, and he did, he, he signed the loan for me, he signed as a co-debtor and he agreed that if I did not keep, keep up the repayments myself, that the bank could come straight to him and take the, the, the money that was owing from him directly, even if that meant having to liquidate something that he owned. Um, he did it for me because I was his son, and he said to me, Jeremy, I'm doing this for you because I'm already responsible for you anyway. If you got yourself into trouble, I'd probably end up paying for you anyway. At least this way you're learning how to deal with financial systems. But don't you dare do this for anybody else. And I remember my business grew and I took on partners and then other people came along and they had good ideas and they wanted to start a business and they needed security and lots of people would come and say, Jeremy, you've got something, could you sign along with me? It's a great idea, you're going to make a lot of money if it's successful. Never ever signed anything like that as a co-debtor for anybody else. Mostly because of my dad's advice, not because I had a brain in my head. Um, so he said, never do it for anybody else. And here is Solomon saying exactly the same thing to his son. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the fowler, like a bird, uh, sorry, like from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. He's not saying that you're running the risk of becoming a slave. He says you already are. By agreeing to cover someone else's debts, you've bound yourself to them. You've become a slave to them. You're ensnared. You are no longer free. You've taken your assets and you've tied them up in somebody else's venture. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the, the principle of sureties necessarily or security or any other financial system, but just this, this principle of becoming enslaved because you're indebted to somebody else. 
If you think slavery is a thing of the past, here is the biggest form of modern-day slavery that there is. There is, there is um, a lot of trafficking going on at the moment, but in terms of first-world slavery, slavery to debt is the thing. So many people I speak to are incapacitated. They're not able to move and do what God has called them to do because they're tied up in debt. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of statistics, just this one. The average debt per household in the United Kingdom is 54,636 54,636 pounds per household. That includes mortgages, so you'd say, well, that's not that bad, but it also includes people on very low incomes. It includes people that are renting. 54,000. That is scary. This is the thing that restricts and binds people up and, and takes away their freedom. And as, as I said earlier, a lot of people spend the rest of their lives paying that debt back. Solomon uses every simile, metaphor, figure of speech he can to plead with his son that if you've got yourself in this position, get yourself flipping out of it now. Do not wait. Don't say, well, it's only for four years or for for ten years and and then it'll lapse. Get yourself out of it now. The suggestion in this passage, I'll come back to that. The suggestion in this passage is not to forsake generosity, okay? The Bible is clear that um, God's people are to be generous. The system at the time that Solomon was presiding over dictated that God's people were to lend money to poor people freely. That means with no interest. So they would lend them money, zero interest um, for 20 months to buy a bed or something like that, you know? So zero interest, free loans to the people, and that all debts that were left would be written off after a period of seven years. So it was kind of like a student loan, except that's for, what, 30 years. Um, so, and there's, what, 1% interest on it? Anyway, the idea is that nobody's lumbered with debt. Nobody's enslaved into unserviceable debt. If you haven't paid it off in seven years, it's gone. There was another system that was, was happening alongside that, which was very similar to our system, which encumbered people with interest-bearing financial agreements. What this means, really, is that God expects us as the body of Christ, as his people, to be generous with our finances. He expects us to be generous with our finances. He expects us to care for each other. He expects us to care for the poor. He expects us to give generously to the work of declaring the gospel and to the building of his church. And I trust that we are all comfortable and happy and accept that position that he expects us to be generous, but he also expects us to be good stewards. He expects us to be careful with how we spend our money. If we can't afford something that, um, that, that we really want, that we should maybe avoid clever financing deals that seem to make it more affordable and then ensnare us. We should try and avoid those types of things. He encourages us not to bind ourselves to people um, and their ventures, especially people we don't know, and we have no control over how that venture pans out, because that will enslave us. It's about enslaving. The motive's not so much the, pa- the financial loss, but the breaking of relationship that can be caused. Just imagine if God said to me, Jeremy, I want you to go to the UK, and I said, I can't go. I'm tied up in a whole bunch of different financial agreements that I can't unwind. So sorry, God, I'm not going to do what you've called me to do. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's Jesus, Matthew 6, verse 24. I said earlier that God was faithful to us in, in keeping us from debt so that we were free to serve him. When, we said, when he said to us, move to the UK, all we had to do was sell our house, our car, and go. Yes, we were paying on the house. We had a, a bond, what you guys call a mortgage, and, and the, the car was financed. But we could pay off that debt by selling and go. All we had to do, when we were asked to move from Cornwall to Birmingham, all we had to do was find a job, a house, and a school, and move our stuff. We weren't bound to anyone. We were free to do what God asked. And the truth is that some of us need to be taking Christ's advice here. We need to find a way of being released from our debts to others. We need to be hearing and feeling the urgency of our Father's voice when he says, save yourself like a gazelle from the, hand of, from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. I want you to be free. I came to set you free. That's what my son came to do, so that you can be all that I want you to be. Some of us need to see how Christ has done what Solomon tells us not to do for anyone else, how Christ has stood as security, as surety for, for us. We had a debt that we could never pay off to God, and he came in and he stood as security for us, paying a far greater debt than we could ever hope to settle. We need to accept that and glory in that. We need to stand in wonder at his mercy towards us in that situation. Our response to him should be worship and gratitude and, and thankfulness and fearlessness and massive generosity that defies reason. Some of us need to respond in that way. So the sage takes his progression on from the sun to the sluggard and we start our little downward spiral. God starts encouraging us to be disciplined, watchful, alert to his movement and his hand. There's, there's an old story, and, and some of you may have heard it, so just be patient with me if you have, about a lady living in a village on a floodplain. And the story goes that one day a river breaks its banks and the village starts flooding and uh, everyone's evacuating and firemen come and ask the lady to get on a fire engine and they're going to drive her off and rescue her. And she, uh, she says, no, thank you, I've, I've prayed to God, I've asked him to rescue me and I'm going to faithfully wait for him to, to rescue me. And anyway, the, the firemen say, well, okay, all right, and, and drive off. And the flood continues to worsen and she climbs up the stairs onto the next level of a house, and uh, a boat comes by, and the, the captain of the boat says to her, come on in, come on into the boat, we'll rescue you, and she says, no, thank you, I'm waiting for God to rescue me, and the flood continues rising, and she manages to find a way onto the roof of her house, and um, a helicopter comes by, and they drop a ladder, and a, a, a rescue personnel comes down the ladder and offers to, to pick her up off the roof and take her away. And, and she says, no, thank you. I'm, I'm waiting. I've asked God to rescue me and, and he will rescue me. And the flood continues and the lady drowns and she goes to heaven. 
um, because God didn't see her stupidity as a sin worthy of hell. Um, she goes to heaven, and the first thing she asks God is, well, why didn't you rescue me? And obviously he says to her, well, I gave you three opportunities, and you took none of them. Um, so welcome to heaven. Here we go. Um, now, we can laugh at the story, and we can say, oh, well, that's just silly. That's just dumb. None of us are, are that super spiritual. We can all see God's hand in his creation. We'd have all have taken the opportunity of the fire engine or the boat or the or the helicopter, and be quite happy that God has delivered us. Um, but the, the words of Solomon in the next little section tend to remind us that we are prone to missing opportunities that God sets before us, not because we're stupid, but because we're lazy. We're just plain lazy. Verse 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, without any, having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the sluggard is mentioned a few times in Proverbs, and if we have a look at those times, we, we might get a better idea of what a sluggard actually is, but this is a great definition. I think I, I need to share it. You know when you, um, you go into your fridge and you find someone's put the syrup bottle in the fridge, and you take the syrup bottle out of the fridge and you want to put it on your toast, and you turn the bottle over, and you, you watch the syrup as it slowly, slowly starts to ooze towards the nozzle of the bottle, until eventually it gets to the end and you think, okay, well, maybe it's a good idea to squeeze. So you squeeze, and even though you're squeezing, it feels like you're squeezing against tar, and it just won't come out, and eventually it, eventually it gets onto your toast. That's a good definition of a sluggard. Think of that syrup as a sluggard. That's what Solomon has in mind when he's talking about a sluggard. But Proverbs goes further. Proverbs 26 verse 14 says, As a door turns on its hinges... So does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard is lazy. He's constantly making the soft choices, missing one opportunity after another. Day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helplessly in his wasted life. Let's be honest. I know we don't like it, but there's a sluggard in each of us, each and every one of us. I can think of a couple of mornings where I don't want to get up. And that's just the beginning of it. It's what's going on inside my heart. That's the real problem. The sluggard will not make up his mind. In, in the text that we've just read, verse 9, that question, when are you going to wake up, is just too direct a question for the sluggard to even answer. Um, instead of answering directly, he just makes uh, a number of small little compromises until disaster and calamity befall him at the end. Uh, Proverbs 26 verse 15 says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So even when the sluggard finally decides to actually do something, he doesn't have the fortitude to carry on with what he's decided to do. He just stops halfway. He doesn't finish things. Um, thirdly, the sluggard will not face things as they are. Proverbs 22 verse 13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Not likely. What's actually out there is a job, a life, 
a mission, get out of your bed, stop your excuses, and go and do what God has called you to do. You lazy bum. Sorry. So that's what a sluggard is. What is Solomon saying the sluggard should do? He says, go to the ants and take notes, mate. I mean, this is hilarious. I think one thing that sluggards wouldn't mind doing is going to Calvin or Spurgeon or um, some other great theologian and, and discussing theology and, and how life should look. But God says, no, no, don't go to the wise man. Go to the ant. Go to the lowly little ant and take advice from that creature. Just imagine. Just imagine a church full of people who behave like ants. Instead of hanging back, waiting and seeing, being critical about everything and guarded because they're not sure about how things are going to turn out, imagine for once a church full of people who are energized, who are working wholeheartedly, they're engaged, they're full of intensity and conviction, and that's exactly what the world needs to see from us at a time like this, especially in the kind of unsure political arena that we're in at the moment. Instead of us sitting back going, well, look at all the stuff that's happening. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We're all going to hunker down and complain about everybody else. What we should be doing is diving in there and making this the most joyful, most exciting community that we could imagine. So this is what God teaches us from his lowly ants. Firstly, the inner motivation. If you look at verse 7, um, ants have no rulers. They have everything within themselves to do what God has called them to do. They don't need to be pushed. They have inner motivation. Verse 8, um, they work hard. When it's hottest, she's working hardest. Why? Because of this, future preparation. Verse, verse 8 again talks about future preparation. She works hard today for tomorrow. She's not hoping that life will go her way. She's doing all she can at this present moment to be prepared for what's, what's to come. And here how, here's how this applies to you guys, spiritually and practically. There are tough times coming. They are definitely, definitely on their way. How are you stocking up? How are you preparing for winter? Are you hoping that it won't arrive? Are you in God's Word now while the going's good? Are you stocking up on truth and promise are you filling your mind and your heart with promises that will feed you and sustain you in the hard times in the winter time? Are you doing all you can today to prepare for tomorrow? You may say to me, well, Jeremy, this sounds all very works-based. Where's grace in all of this? Why isn't God doing all of this work? Why are you telling us to do it? And I just want to say to you one thing, that the gospel that was powerful enough to save you as you were, is the same gospel that's powerful enough to move you on to where you're meant to be. The gospel shows us so much glory in God. He shows us so much of what Christ has done in us that what it's meant to do to our hearts is fuel growth, and it's meant to encourage a desire to excel, to do really well. Gospel-centered people are compelled. They don't, they don't just like kind of feel like we've got to do something good today. They're compelled. They are compelled to be better. They're compelled to work harder than any other people. Some of us need to wake from our slumber. That's my application from this one. Perhaps you've been settling for little without even noticing. It's your time to stop 
calling yourself a loser. It's time to stop blaming your dad for how your life has turned out. It's stop, time to stop talking about how the, the current political climate has ruined things for your, you. Um, it's time to stop making excuses, and it's time to start talking about what God has given you in Christ. The question is, what are you going to do with Him? Christ, your huge advantage that trumps all of your excuses. We've all got reasons why we can't do anything. Maybe I'll send you a little video um, about the founder of Alibaba um, where he quotes all of the excuses that people come up with for not doing um, great things. We all have excuses, but my question to you is, what are you going to do in the light of Christ, your huge advantage, that trumps all of your excuses? So he's written off our debts, and he sets us free. He's called us to become a community, busy with his work, not entertaining excuses, but embracing this new life of freedom. And then next, Solomon takes us on to one of Satan's favorite strategies, a disruption of church unity. A worthless person, verse 12, a wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. So here we are. We've moved from sun to sluggard to worthless person, and that's heavy. I don't know if you like being known as a worthless person. Uh, I don't. I, I wouldn't like to be described as a worthless person. And just to be clear, the Bible doesn't let us translate that word any more graciously than worthless person. The word there is belial, um, which means without benefit or profit or use. And um, that same word is used in the New Testament as a name for the devil himself in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.15. What accord has Christ with Belial? So what is being said here is that a, a sneaky, manipulative, disruptive person is of no benefit or profit or use to anyone, including God. And to be clear, I don't believe that who Christ is speaking to here is the lost. I think he has the church in mind. I think he's talking to his church with these words. I think it's brilliant to have skeptics, doubters, agnostics, atheists here with us in our meetings, but I'd be surprised if they weren't critical. That's to be expected. They don't believe. And the truth is, they don't believe, but Christ can still reach out and change their hearts, and they can become believers in an instant, regardless of all of our wise arguments. But I don't believe the Scripture is to be taken as proof that, that we should distance ourselves from unbelievers. That's not where it's going. This is more likely a rebuke to would-be saints. And believe me, there are plenty of people in our churches that fit this description. They're not just sinning stupidly, making a mistake here and there. They, they continually sin purposefully and aggressively. What does that look like? What does it look like, this, this winking, this signaling, this sneering, criticizing. When they find themselves disagreeing with someone in leadership, they go to other people. They don't go directly to the person in leadership, they go to other people and, and quietly talk about their very serious concern or issue. And, and they possibly even suggest praying for that person because of their concern for them. And um, they never go to the person they have the problem with because their heart isn't actually truly for them or for God. 
Their intention is to undermine and to gain influence and, and power through cunning. This is the kind of the person that the Bible calls worthless. I've been in many churches, and the truth is none of them are immune to this. It could be about spiritual gifts. It could be about the order of service. It could be about how the chairs are arranged. It could be about the color of the banners. Um, it could be about how finances are used. It could be about who's getting the most attention. It could be about whether you're a lever or a, a remainer. It could be about serious theological issues. It could be all the way through to the pettiest of details. No church is immune. I've seen it, and I've sometimes been pulled into it, and I've had to check myself and pull out of it. And I need to tell you that Satan is waiting at your door to try and tempt you into quietly criticizing and undermining your brothers and sisters. It's not just me. When I look at verse 15, it seems that God's willing to punish people for this. And when we go on to verse 16, it becomes very clear that he hates this kind of behavior. So verse 16 there says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. The, sorry, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now when you look at that, he's talking about six things and then a seventh. Now the seventh is the important point. It's the most important point. It's the key to understanding all of the other points that is listed. So when you look at that, you've got to ask yourself, so why does God hate haughty, haughty eyes? Because it brings, it sows discord amongst brothers. Why does he hate a lying tongue? Because it sows discord amongst brothers. Strange one this, um, hands that shed innocent blood, actually because it causes discord amongst brothers, and so on and so forth. He hates discord so much that it turns his stomach. That's what an abomination means. It turns his stomach. It makes him want to get sick. Remember I said that the structure of this passage spirals down negatively, but the lessons we learn move us up positively. So we are to learn how to live by seeing how not to live from these passages. And so this last section that we're looking at should bring us to the climax of saintly living. He's written off our debts, he's set us free, he's called us to become a community, busy with his work, not entertaining excuses, but embracing this new life of freedom, and he's called us to be a unified brother, brotherhood that is not just sweet, we're not just doing nice things for each other, but we're prophetic in our unity. You see, God delights in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. Christ dwells in the midst of unity with His Father and the Holy Spirit. And in our unity, as the body of believers, we see His cross becoming real because in our hearts we demote ourselves. It's not all about us. It's about Him. And it's for His sake. And we exalt Him more. It is far more than just being nice. To each other. When we're unified, what we're actually doing is we're making a prophetic declaration to every other idol in the world that Jesus is Lord and you are not. That Jesus makes life beautiful and you do not. Nice new car, house, etc., etc., etc. That Jesus binds us together and you cannot. You have no claim on us here. 
And we declare by our precious unity that we belong to Jesus Christ, not to you. We are free. We belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, friend of sinners. When we look to the one who is equal to God, but he humbled himself to become a man so that we might have life and was therefore exalted, we see how to live. We see an example of a generous man who was wise, a peaceful man who seized every opportunity, a humble man who drew his people together. This is how we are to live. Yeah? Let's stand. I'd like to pray for us as a people to God, to Christ, and I'd like us to worship Him for who He is, how great He is. I'd like us to declare by our unity that He has power over us, no other idol. So, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank You. I want to thank You that uh, You are the King of kings, that You are the Lord of lords, and that's not just something trite that we say, that is a declaration into the heavenly realms that You rule over all things, that You rule in our hearts, that You reign in our hearts. And Lord, that when we say to You that You are Lord and Savior in our lives, we mean that You have the right to do what You will in our lives. We love You. We trust You. We know that you have good things in store for us and that what you have called us to do will not kill us but will give us everything that we need to accomplish what you have called us to. And so, Lord, for some of us, I know we need to come to you and we need to be repentant. We need to be repentant because because we have got ourselves tied up in debt, because we've wanted things that we haven't been able to get, because we, we just don't have the resources, but people have convinced us that if we just do this or that deal, we'll get there. Or we've, we've got involved in business dealings that promise great wealth in the future, but have tied us up into, into a nightmare right now. And we know that if you called us, we would feel like we are just tied down and we cannot do what you asked us to do. And Lord, we ask that you would not only deliver us, but you would give us the boldness and the strength to find a way to unwind the things that we have put ourselves into. Lord, help us to free ourselves financially so that we can do your will. Lord, some of us need to come to you and repent because we have we have been speaking against our brothers and our sisters. We have had very serious concerns and we've muttered. We have manipulated. We have tried to gain influence. And in so doing, we've caused disunity amongst our, our family. And we're so sorry for that, Lord. Lord, at the end of the day, our unity declares your lordship and, and we don't want to break that down. And Lord, some of us are, are guilty of of being fearful and hiding in our beds and not doing what you've called us to do because there are lions out there. And Lord, we ask that you would give us boldness and you would give us fortitude to stand up and get out of our beds and walk out of our doors and go and do what you have called us to do and discover that there are no lions and we will not be slaughtered. But there is a job out there to do and we will go and do it. So we look to the Anto, Lord, and we ask that you would make us a community of believers that glorify you through our work. We ask this in Jesus' name.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.